Welcome to The Mountain Podcast. The Mountain Church is dedicated to helping people love Jesus and the people they encounter every day. Today, you will listen to our most recent Sunday sermon. So sit back, relax, and let Jesus speak to you wherever you may be. And now, this week's sermon. We're in a series this month called Love Thy Neighbor. Uh, It's in the Bible. It's really, really good. And uh, last week I preached out of a place of the foundational aspects of loving thy neighbor are uh, a love uh, for God, uh, but also very importantly, a love for yourself. Uh, Matthew 22 speaks to it really clearly. It says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So just a reference to what we established last week, because we're going to continue from there, is that it's very, very challenging and even impossible to accomplish a love for your neighbor that God has designed for you if you do not learn to love yourself the way God wants you to love yourself or the way God loves you. Uh, So I want to invite you to that place to love yourself the way God loves you because loving God and loving yourself are some of the most beautiful foundational aspects to loving your neighbor well and loving your neighbor in the way that God has gotten designed for you. And when you think about these things, you can't really separate your self journey from your other's journey. And that's what we're going to be talking about a lot today is God, you know, it's so amazing the way God works in our life. He begins with us, the individual. I don't know if you've noticed, but in worship, a lot of times you'll see a pattern. Uh, Other than it being songs you recognize and know, um, there's a pattern of how we partner in prayer. And it almost always, and, and not to make it a religious thing, but if you just notice how God works in your life, he begins with you, the person, and it extends beyond you. Um, when we worship God, a lot of times it's such a personal direct line, right? We spend about 25, 30 minutes in a direct line approach. Eyes closed, hands to heaven. We're all together meeting with God individually and together corporately. But then at some point, we like to encourage or God likes to do in our life something where it's like your cup overflows and he, he moves in you and he moves through you. So when you open up your eyes, the loving your neighbor is all of these people around you. You know, if you're wondering what neighbors are, it's not just the person that lives next to you. In fact, one of my neighbors is probably not even actually my real neighbor biblically. I can't, I can't even, I can't, I cannot catch them. They are super evasive. They drive up the same two spots on the driveway. I've never seen anything like it in all of my years, in all of the neighborhoods I've ever been to. They've only ever driven up two spots on the driveway. There's two tire marks perfectly on the driveway. They open the door and they perfectly drive in. And before they get out of their car, they close the door. I have tried for five plus years to pursue them. And it looks like this, the garage door is closing and I'm like, hey. So, but being a neighbor or when you're talking about a biblical understanding of neighbor, you're talking about somebody that has an orbit in your life. Uh, a crossing of paths continually. Maybe it's, maybe it's a light crossing. Maybe it's a deep and intimate relationship and neighborhood crossing. Uh, but nonetheless, when we're talking about loving thy neighbor, we really are talking about loving everybody, but specifically the people we find in the orbit of our life. Uh, because that's where the labor of love really does kick in. And you can't separate it from yourself. 
when you love yourself, it extends out to love others, and it's beautiful. I encourage you in a time of worship to let that overflow happen. If you're in a place of worship and you look around and you're like, so-and-so over there, God's saying something in my life to them. Write it down. If you can't do it in that moment, go give it to them after and say, hey, hopefully this helps. Or if it's somebody you know, go give it to them after. Bring somebody along to pray with them and partner with their journey if God's leading you to love somebody like that. And also ask God. It's always so important. Okay, so we're going to start in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 8. And we're going to hit 9 and 11 probably. But what you see here is you see a scripture rundown that starts you in a place of self and that extends beyond that to a place of others. And we're going to see that real shift take place. But as we should know, when it comes to God doing a work in others' life through us, it begins with the work that he's doing in us personally, individually. He does not neglect that. In fact, it's most typically the foundation of how he does this. Okay, so 1 Peter 4, 1 through 8. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Okay, we're going to stop here for a second. And you're going to see this language, which I think is really helpful to correct a certain way of thinking. And it says, arm yourself. When we talk about spiritual warfare, oftentimes our imagination or our brain goes to a place of like praying for other people's, you know, bondage and demons. And we're like, dude, that person's got a demon. Let's do some spiritual warfare. Let's get the prayer elders together and let's pray and let's do this thing, you know, or we go pray for them and we go through some spiritual warfare or we recognize principalities and powers in high places that are dominating certain things. And we're like, let's do some spiritual warfare. And usually it's some kind of yelling in a room somewhere. And usually we try and get some kind of an acoustic worshiper so that we can sing a little bit too. You guys ever been in a spiritual warfare prayer meeting? You guys like them? Mixed results, all right. This is not the only aspect of spiritual warfare. And in fact, this spiritual warfare should come as an extension to the warfare you do in your own life. And, and honestly, I think most people's thought process of warfare is a little bit misconstrued in that when you look at how Jesus or when the word outlines warfare, it's not really that much from a place of uh, omnipotent, self-reliant power. But spiritual warfare, when it's appropriately done in partnership with Jesus, comes from a place that it says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. Get that weapon of warfare in your life to understand what is this way of thinking. It is that Christ suffered in the flesh. What an odd weapon to use to overcome sin, but to say that your great weapon to overcome sin will be learning to co-suffer, to have the fellowship of the sufferings with Jesus and overcome sin through a long-suffering tool. It's really interesting, and it says, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. And as it goes on to say, it says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Such a great mystery in community and loving thy neighbor is what to do with sin in our personal life and what to do with the sin of a neighbor around us, of a relationship around us. 
And you've probably had a couple of different experiences, if not several, on how people dealt with you when you were in a place of sin. Some positive, some not so positive. Some damaging, sometimes the very way they dealt with you led you to have offense and bitterness, which added to your problems. Not only was there the pattern of sin, now you were offended, uh, and then you have double the issues, (laughs) bitterness and captivity. So a lot of times when we talk about loving thy neighbor, we don't bring up sin and we bring up like bake them cookies, feed them, clothe them, things like this, all a part of loving your neighbor for sure. Uh, But we've got to understand what sin does in our personal life and what it does in community. And the Bible says the wages of sin are death. So we for sure got to understand without Jesus's blood, sin causes death. It causes spiritual death. It causes this death to Christ. So when when you're following Jesus, you die to self and you become alive in Christ. When sin dominates your life or somebody else's life, you have the opposite effect taking place. Is they're dying away from their relationship with Christ and they're becoming alive in their flesh. So when we learn to overcome self and desire that comes from the flesh, it's because we've learned to have this fellowship of the suffering with Jesus that overcomes the desires of our flesh. This is so important because when you think of spiritual warfare, you think oftentimes that I'm going to win this battle from a place of giftedness or revelation or some kind of prophetic insight, and I'm going to go from there and I'm going to swing it around like a hammer or a sword. You ever see somebody praying in this one? Just like this right here. And they're swinging their spiritual warfare hammer or or sword around. You're like, God, I break it down in the name of Jesus. I slice this thing up with the word. And oftentimes we see it as this kind of like, I am powerful. And we see it as like, I just did my max bench press. And honestly, at this point, we got to recognize that spiritual warfare is not done from a place of personal self-strength, but from a place of humility. When we war or we arm ourselves in a place of suffering to overcome the flesh, this is a place of humility. This is not a place of great self-pronounced in excellence. This is not some kind of like, hey, our worship team got so excellent in their exercise of spiritual worship uh, that we have now eliminated sin in our lives and in community. No, in fact, the opposite is true. Oftentimes, the most talented reap a harvest of praise from men that causes a malaise of what they should do with sin in their life. We got to really recognize this thing out and we got to understand that the same way of thinking is look like my life, whatever role I play in community, honestly doesn't help me overcome sin. So if I'm an excellent communicator, it doesn't cause me to have any ability to overcome sin that is natural to my flesh. And your natural flesh sin is going to probably be a little different than mine, et cetera, et cetera. When we look around the room, we're probably going to have different places of character deficiency. Have you recognized yours? Have you recognized your your, your moral deficiencies on your own without the help of Jesus? You will continue to sin in those ways. Have you recognized them? You ought to. I've recognized mine and I'm open to others telling me ones I haven't seen. 
<laughs> I like it when one person really likes a point. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> but it's the reality is, is that, look, I'm overcoming sin in my life still to this day, not through my strength expression, but through my suffering expression. It's not fun. You don't feel stronger when you overcome sin. You actually ought to feel a very, very significant sense of self has died. And the life you live, you now live in Christ. It should be a sense of this is not my own. It should be a sense of like Christ resurrected me in this way. I have experienced Christ's life in me, Christ's spirit in me, not my own. You guys following with me right now? Okay, for the past, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Okay, a couple points on this. We have a past. We all have a past. And some of us have a past of great sin, as people would say. And some of us have a past of not that bad, but still sin. Here's what it's saying about this. Look, that's our past. And you got to understand your past, ooh, for sure, for sure does not determine your worthiness and or God's ability to forgive you. Whatever your past is, whatever your shameful sin is, maybe you're still hiding it, maybe you haven't, and you just bear your shame in public. And you know you have shame, and yet you still put your head down with shame in community, even though you know God doesn't want you to be shamed. Whatever your history of sin is today, choose today to give it no more power in your life to condemn you. That's my invitation. Of course, you still have choice. You can go, brother, amen, I believe you. I hear you, and right here you can agree with me, and you could walk away and still say, man, I am a filthy sinner. I'm a filthy sinner. I'll never be any different. But I want to implore you. I want to provoke you today to believe what I'm saying about Jesus. He forgives you entirely. And whatever depth of sin you have, do not try and hide it or bear it with some kind of cloak of false humility, but give it to Jesus and humble yourself before the Lord in repentance your ability to perform in your past does not dictate what God will give you. It is not a currency of money that you build up and buy things, blessings from God. We've got to get away from this performance thing. Like we're not building up money with God to buy blessings. We're not doing this. Like, I got to tell you this just real quick story on it. When I was 18 years old, my, I, I started dating Jessica, my wife. If you don't know my wife, Jessica, she's amazing. We've been married 12 years. She's up there hanging out with all the kiddos right now. When I met her, I was walking with Jesus. I was on fire for Jesus. I was on a Nazarite vow, no toleration of sin, all of this stuff. But that was fresh. <laughs> that was new. And she, what? Oh, I was like, I didn't think it was that funny. <laughs> I told the story in the first one. So this Nazarite value, you grow your beard out. It's an external representation of an internal thing. 
which to say you're setting yourself apart to, to holiness, consecration. So I looked like that. <laughs> I'm at Hash House or Go-Go with my wife on a date right there. She met and dated me and married me while I looked like that. No greater love. Please take that down. That's so distracting to me. Um, but when I met her, Jessica was amazing. She was extraordinary. She walked with God in such beautiful, amazing ways. And she made some decisions in her life that were different than mine. One is that I was her first kiss. Uh, she saved herself for marriage. I think I was the second person to ever hold her hand. So I'll never forgive her for holding another person's hands. But I did not make the same decisions. I did not save myself from marriage. I had sex before marriage. And I did not make the same decisions in righteousness that she made. And uh, when she started to date me and stuff like that, I wasn't in that place. I had repented. I'd walked out a different journey and path. Uh, but it was really very fresh. It was really very new compared to her journey. I'm saying this because I did not inherit that beautiful marriage relationships because the credit I built up in my behavior up until that point, but that God behaved towards me in the manner that I was walking currently in a repented commitment to holiness walk. Otherwise, I didn't deserve to marry her. She had more credibility and purity than I had. She walked it out in a different way than I did, so I did not earn the right to marry her in that regard. And yet God still brought her into my life. We got married, and we, you know, 12 years later, four awesome kids. This took place not because of the credit I had built up in my behavior or my past, but because of the repented walk I was walking at that time. So we should understand that God doesn't dictate our future exclusively based on the sins of our past. We should understand this. We should recognize that the, that the blood of Jesus is powerful, that God's forgiveness is really, really powerful. And we ought to recognize this because when it comes to loving our neighbor and loving ourselves, we've got to overcome the power of sin. We've got to overcome this power, and there's no way to overcome the power of sin in our personal lives and in community than to apply the undeserved blood of Jesus. It's undeserved for all of us. I did not, and I do not deserve the blood of Jesus' power in my life. Neither do you, neither do you, neither do you. We are all humble recipients of God's power in our life. This is super important to understand because when it comes to our past, when it comes to that association group that we sinned with, here it's called Gentiles, but you know, for each of us, they're probably not called Gentiles, they're called something else. Insert bad group in our life of the past. And it's not that they're bad, right? Like in the sense that they are not to be condemned to hell by us. But what's to be recognized is the associations that you partnered with to have past sinful behaviors, to understand the draw of the flesh for those sinful things in your life. It's interesting the way we kind of almost offshoot and outsource responsibility to a company. You ever notice this? is like, oh, my kid's not, he's rebellious because he has like three rebellious friends. And I was always like, you know what? 
I rebelled not because of my friends, but because I wanted to rebel and I found rebellious friends. You know, birds of a feather flock together. There's something in desire that we've got to recognize in ourselves and in others that draws them to places of sinful desire manifested in a company of people. Be aware of this because you don't need to villainize those people. You need to recognize in humility the draw it has on your flesh. You guys tracking with me right now? When we condemn company and we fail to have a humble, repented walk over our own proclivity for sin, we do a wrong thing. We do a wrong thing. It, it actually maintains some false image of self that ought not be there. That, hey, evil did not originate in my heart. It was Jimmy's fault. You see, it, it preserves a false sense of self. It preserves a sense of self that I'm not a sinner. I just happen to be influenced by a sinner. Sinner saved by grace. You do not need to decline your status of sinning in order to be saved by grace. And in fact, I'll go one step further. You're probably not going to get saved by grace if you don't recognize your status of sin. God gives grace to the humble. Resist the proud. Step outside of your defense for yourself and walk into a place of contrition. Walk into a place of true repentance over who you've been, and don't blame others for it. I'm going to skip to verse 6. It says, For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And this is where the shift comes goes from self to others. And it says, above all, keeping love, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Recognize the shift that happens almost out of nowhere. See, Peter's talking about a a journey of self, of holiness, honestly, of sinlessness that comes from suffering with Christ. And then it leads into and it pivots to a place of loving others, earnestly loving others. And it then states what love does, which I think is really powerful, and I want to camp here for the next five minutes. It says, love covers a multitude of sins. I have recognized over the last probably three or four weeks that love wants to cover a multitude of sins, and I know this, I believe this, and in most situations, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Recently in my life, I have felt like doing the opposite of love wants to do. I have felt like illuminating and revealing and uncovering sin because I'm frustrated at the appearance appearance of injustice. And as I began to recognize this, I began to realize that in church community, we face this all the time. So-and-so is in sin. So-and-so is doing this. So-and-so is doing that. Real things, real recognized things. It's not to remove the fact that these things exist But all of a sudden, the scripture begins to point to how we handle it. Now, we definitely don't handle sin by going into denial or lying about it and not doing anything about it. This is definitely not biblical narrative. Biblical narrative actually has a very clear approach to sin. And if you start in Matthew 18, 14 through 19, and if you start in 15, actually, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
And the next few verses go on to say, bring somebody else with you. And if he still doesn't listen, bring along the church. And if he still doesn't listen, you have nothing to do with him. So it actually gives a methodology and approach to how to handle a brother who's in sin. And we must say that seeing a brother in sin is different than just having a disagreement with a brother. So if you disagree about politics, this is not what it's talking about. You, you got to hear me on this. Like this is you see your brother in sin, not just you believe he's an idiot. Okay? okay. All right. So when we see this, what is it actually teaching and tutoring us to do? It's actually teaching us how to handle somebody in sin without uncovering them. Love covers a multitude of sin. There's an appropriate path of love that deals with sin without uncovering it to the community. This is that, this is that expression, is that path. Why do you go one-on-one? Because when you find a brother in sin and you talk to everybody else about it, you've just entered into and engaged in gossip, rumor, and innuendo. And gossip is still gossip if you are telling a truthful thing to everybody else except the person. So when you have a truth of where somebody's at and it's in sin, it is uncomfortable to have to be the one to do something about it in a biblical way. Do you know how many times I wished I was absolutely not the one that was aware of somebody's sin? Do you know how many times? Almost every time. Almost every time I'm like, why did I have to be here in this moment, in this place of recognizing this and seeing this? I want to run. Pretend like I never saw it. Because it's challenging. It's difficult. Because you know what comes when you talk to somebody about their sin? All kinds of stuff. All kinds of manifestations happen. All kinds of defensiveness happen. Sometimes people get super nasty. Sometimes people start to get really, really like, oh, yeah, you like my spec? There's your plank, bro. And they start throwing planks at you, and you're like, whoa, this is getting intense. And you get really, like, uncomfortable with the whole confrontation of this scripture, which says if you see your brother in sin, go to him one-on-one. Yikes, that's challenging. Yikes, that's uncomfortable. But it's actually instructing us on how to love a brother in sin. How to love them well is to go to them one-on-one. It's the most loving thing you can do. It's the most loving initial thing you can do. And then next, next up, what do you do is you only do what is necessary in helping that person's repented journey, which is how much do you uncover them? Only one or two other people's worth. And only to bring them along to help with the situation. Like we gotta see the whole heart of this thing. It's actually to restore people to a place of walking in righteousness. It's not to condemn them. It's not to punish them. It's not to eliminate them. It's actually effort to restore them. I've seen both paths done. I've seen the path of great loving care over somebody's sinful path, one-on-one confrontation, two-on-one confrontation. And then I've also seen the other one, which everyone found out that that person was in sin before that person. Do you know how much more pain and chaos that causes? Because we've actually just doubled up the effect of sin. This person's been uncovered. This person has actually been damaged by gossip. It's torn apart their reputation. It's torn apart their path and their journey. And you know, the challenge of it is this, is that when people experience through gossip somebody's sin, they get a damage that's really hard to resolve. 
you got to hear me on this. Sin is damaging. So when one person experiences it, you got to repair it. But all of a sudden, when you share it with 50 people, 50 people have just been damaged by that person's sin, and they're going to have almost no chance to repair it with that person. Are you guys tracking with me right now? This is a real biblical narrative and precedence because we don't do good at it naturally. We just don't. Our fleshly desire is absolutely not to talk to them face-to-face about their sin. Absolutely not. And so we get called to this place of courage and community in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. It says, judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, et cetera, et cetera? It goes on to talk about the plank and the speck dynamic. Look, our role and our responsibility is to love well. When we make ourselves the judge of a person, we actually take on a responsibility that is not our own, but that is the Holy Spirit's. In community, we're going to witness and we're going to observe people in factual sin. What do we do and how do we love our neighbor when we see them in sin? It's actually very important that we don't stand by idly and do nothing, but we engage in courageous relationship to talk to them, to love on them by having a very real conversation about where they're at and what God wants to do in their life and being open to hearing the same thing coming back at you. I've always thought this is really interesting, the spec plank thing. If I go to somebody and I go to confront them about their sin or talk to them in the way the Bible talks about, about a sinful place, I'm actually very open to the idea that I've got a plank. Very open. And if they're like, oh, brother, you see a speck. I see your plank and check it out. Here's your plank. I'm like, whoa, I got got a plank? That's intense. So this plank has obviously caused a lot of blindness in my life. I mean, if you had a plank in your eye, you probably can't see very well out of it, right? So being open, being very humble. The best approach to sin in our life or in community's life is humility on both ends. On the recipient of a confrontation and then also on the giving side of a confrontation. Are you doing it with great humility? Because if you're doing it with great humility, grace will be upon you, grace will be upon them, and God will be able to do a greater work in their life than if you bring arrogance, judgment, superiority, elitism. We've got to finish up here, but there is a a very real path where Jesus does a work in our life. And it actually reminds me of the couple of different ways that I've approached my kids in discipline. And the times where I I had to repent or the times I had to make it right with my kids and with God and my wife is when I, I, I disciplined my kid in anger. And sometimes this feels like it's the only source of motivation to, to accomplish true discipline. But any parents know in this place that the that the discipline path of anger is one that is usually wrought with mistakes, wrought with regret over things we say, over ways we behave, we're too much this, too much that. And it really doesn't produce the righteousness of God. And so when we see this path where it's like, I gotta be angry in order to discipline my kids, or I gotta be angry in order to confront this person, we ought to take a different path to partnering with somebody's life, both our kids and both relationships around us. And that the path of anger is not necessary in order for us to walk this out. And in fact, it's more damaging than anything. So the path we take and the path that we must allow God to cultivate inside of us is a pathway of humility, which is absolutely driven to love well. Absolutely driven to love well. So when I'm talking to the person, 
about what they are in bondage in or what they are in sin on. I'm actually attempting to access freedom and breakthrough for their life in partnership with them. See, sin becomes this great plague, this great plague of disconnect between us and God. It's not a place of harmony. It's not a place of wholeness with God. So when we partner with somebody's sin, it's actually to help repair a disconnect between them and God. You guys track with me right now? I know sin is not the most popular idea to talk about. And maybe I should have talked about financial prosperity when we have relationship with God or something. But when it comes to our souls, when it comes to our community and our relationship, if we don't know how to lovingly partner with ourselves and one another in a place of sin, we're not going to stand the test of time as a community. One bad sin will take place in the community and it'll just crumble the whole thing. Decay will take place because we don't know what to do and we're super intimidated by sin and its effect in our life. For sure, somebody around you sinned today. For sure, they sinned this week. For sure. And, and you might be surprised at how bad the sin was. And you might not like the, to hear about it. You might not even want to know about it. You might be like, hey, whoa, whoa, ah, I don't want to know. And yeah, don't find out in gossip. But if you, if you find out in relationship with them, don't run. Don't run from the sin and its effect in their life. Don't run from it. If you need help, go and don't use their name and ask somebody with wise counsel, say, there's a friend or a relationship in my life. What do I do in this spot? Insert anonymous, no name here. Seek wisdom, seek, seek guidance on it, but don't run from the plague of sin in somebody's life. Meet them in that place of brokenness. Meet them in that place of bondage and help. Help them. Take sin as a, as a sign, as an invitation to bring the life and the spirit of Jesus into that place. Not the condemnation, not the punishment. Partner in the reconciliation with Jesus. And allow yourself to be in the same spot. See yourself fully. Don't hide from the full recognition of who you are. All your deficiencies, all of your brokenness, all of your deep darkness, whatever it may be. Thank you for listening to The Mountain Podcast. The Mountain Church is located in Las Vegas, Nevada, with services happening every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. If you'd like to know more about The Mountain Church, please visit us at themtnchurch.com or watch one of our services on YouTube. Again, thank you for tuning in.